I just want to start this evening by saying, as been, has been said already, Happy Easter to everybody. Today we, um, we join with more than two billion people around the world to celebrate the single most significant event in human history. And uh, tonight we want to look at that, the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to look at it in part through the eyes of one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, Peter. And in that, I want to invite us to explore how Jesus' resurrection gives each of us the basis of two things. The basis for validation. Validation of everything Jesus did and everything that he said. And secondly, the basis for vision. Vision for a life that God has called each of, each of us to and Jesus has restored us into. And I'll come back to that a bit later. But first of all, Peter. Now many of us here will be familiar with Peter, other of us maybe not so much. But by the time of Jesus' crucifixion that we remembered on Thursday night and Friday, just gone, Peter had been one of Jesus' followers for about three years and one of his closest friends. And in that time, Peter probably thought he'd seen and heard everything. He'd seen miracles, he'd seen healings, he'd seen acts of compassion and mercy beyond anything he'd ever seen. He'd heard words that painted a picture of a different life. And yet in amongst the miracles and the healings and the words and the acts of compassion, Jesus kept saying something. He kept saying that he was going to have to die, but on the third day he would rise again. And these three incredible years had culminated in one tumultuous week that we've just remembered. The week that led up to Jesus' crucifixion. Events that would be etched on Peter's memory. There was Jesus' triumphant entrance into Jerusalem, where he was hailed as a king and a hero. There was Jesus' statement to Peter himself that Peter would deny even knowing him. There was a last meal shared with his disciples, an agonizing night in a garden where Jesus cried out to his Father in heaven while his disciples sat beside him and just slept, including Peter. And then immediately followed Jesus' arrest. He was bound and he was led away. And then came Peter's act of cowardice, the act of cowardice that Jesus had predicted, where he denied even knowing Jesus. I look good for 68, I know. But I am. It's true. Just use your imagination and add a few more wrinkles. Imagination is a funny word. I've seen things you would never imagine. I've seen things I never imagined. I never imagined I'd end up here. 
and never imagined I'd be one of the last ones to go. I imagined I'd be fishing my whole life. It's what I did. I was good at it. But when he called me by my name, well, that was my before and after moment. There was my life before and my life after. Before I was stationary, I was in the same place doing the same thing. But after I met him, I was on a Oh, it's going to sound corny, I know, but I was on a journey. I was on my way somewhere. On my way home, I suppose. In all my years, I've learned a few things. I'll give you this one for free. When someone speaks with authority, real authority, you do well to listen. Do not be afraid. Sounds simple enough. But when the person who's telling you that is walking on water in a storm, and I'm not just talking to some shallow puddle, when the wind gets up on the Sea of Galilee, it can chew you up and spit you out if you don't know what you're doing. But when Jesus said, do not be afraid to me, I wasn't. Until I started sinking, of course. But that's because I was trying to do it on my own. And to think... I once said, depart from me, because I am a sinful man. I thank him every day that he didn't listen to me. There was many a day I didn't listen to him, in one ear and out the other. I'm not educated. I certainly didn't know what changing my name to Peter had to do with anything. A stone, a rock, I didn't know what he meant. But looking back now, I can see that he saw me then as he intended me to be one day. He was good like that. He saw things as they really were. When they told us Jairus, his daughter had died, he corrected them straight away. Do not be afraid. He liked that one a lot. Do not be afraid. She's not dead. And then me, John and James, saw how simple it was. How clearly he saw things. And the power of his words. Sometimes those words weren't quite so gentle. I was one of his closest friends. And when he started talking of suffering and dying and leaving us. And I said, it shouldn't have to happen like that. He rounded on me and he called me Satan. And it shut me up quick, smart, I can tell you. There's not many people who can do that. In fact, he was probably the only person who could shut me up, really. He was unique like that. He was unique for all sorts of reasons. That's what made it so easy to follow and serve him, the way he loved people, the way he healed people, the way... Why would you want to betray a man like that? And yet, warming myself by the fire, when that man pointed his finger at me and accused me of being one of them, I turned around and I said, I don't know what you're talking about. The sound of a cockerel crowing has never been the same 
Christians. It was the look in Jesus' eyes. He saw everything. And then after, we saw the hope and the life and the fire and the light go out. Can you imagine it for a moment? Your closest friend, the person who had believed in you, the one who'd entrusted you with authority, the man who'd given you hope of a future, the man whose warnings to you you'd abruptly dismissed, and it had culminated with you sat around in a courtyard at his greatest hour of need, and you repeatedly deny even knowing him. And at that moment of your third denial, you look across the courtyard as you curse and you shout, I don't even know this man. And you see Jesus looking right at you. That's where Peter found himself. And the Bible says that he went out that night and he wept bitterly. And then in the following hours, as Thursday moved into Friday, Jesus was falsely accused. He was tried, he was found guilty, he was tortured, and he was brutally executed. And then he was placed in a tomb. And Peter hid throughout that time. And he continued to hide. Another night came and went, Another day went by, and then another night. And we have no written account of what happened to Peter in those hours. But there was certainly plenty of time for thinking. Maybe time to think of when he had heard Jesus say, but whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Time to reflect on how much he'd blown it. But also spinning round his head would have been the things maybe that he'd heard Jesus say. That he was the way, the truth, and the life. That he'd come to establish a new kingdom. That he and the Father are one. That he was the Son of God. At one point, even effectively referring to himself as God. He called himself, I am. And that he'd come to set the captives free. But now it was all in tatters. But there were other words that Jesus had said. He'd said he was going away, but that he would come back. He'd said he was going to die, but he would rise on the third day. He'd even referred to himself as the resurrection and the life, whatever that meant. And I wonder if most significantly for Peter is when Jesus predicted Peter's denial, he said these words, Simon, Simon, that was Peter's original name, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. 
And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And I wonder if, in amongst the fear and the confusion and the shame, for Peter, there was a glimmer of, what if it's still true? You see, Peter and his fellow disciples had found themselves in an all-or-nothing situation. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be God. He'd made these outlandish claims that he would die and then he would rise again. So as things stood, it was over. If Jesus simply died, it was gone. Everything was gone. And then, early in the morning, on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone was removed away from the entrance. She ran at once to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Breathlessly panting, they took the master from the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. Peter and the other disciple left immediately for the tomb. They ran neck and neck. The other disciple got to the tomb first, outrunning Peter. Stooping to look in, he saw the pieces of linen cloth lying there. But he didn't go in. Simon Peter arrived after him, entered the tomb, observed the linen cloths lying there. Then the other disciple, the one who'd got there, gotten there first, went into the tomb, took one look at the evidence and believed. The disciples then went back home. Now, could it be, could it be that Jesus had done what he said he would do? John, who was there also, he believed, but Peter wasn't so sure. But later that night, that, that night Jesus appeared to all the disciples, including Peter. It was true. Jesus had risen from the dead. He was the Son of God. He was one with the Father. He was the light of the world. He was the Messiah. He was God. He was the resurrection and the life. See, the resurrection was the basis for validation. It validated everything that Jesus had said and done throughout the three years of his ministry. It validated it for Peter, for John, for me, and for you. Then and now. Tim Keller, an American pastor and author, puts it this way. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That is how the first hearers felt who heard repeat reports of the resurrection. They knew that if it was true, it meant we can't live our lives any way we want. It also meant we don't have to be afraid of anything. Not Roman swords, not cancer, nothing. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. It validates Jesus' claims about who he said he was and also what he came to do. For Peter, for the other disciples, for you 
and for me. He came to set the captives free. He came to bring sight to the blind. He came to bind up the brokenhearted. He came to give rest to the weary. He came to make his home in us. And he came to give us life, eternal life. It means that for Peter and for us all, everything that Jesus said was and remains true. Waiting to be executed is a particular kind of refining fire. I don't want to die like this. I don't. And yet I always knew it would be like this. Jesus said to me, when you were young, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and will lead you where you do not want to go. And so I find myself here, in this prison, for not denying him. But I can tell you I would much rather be in this prison than the prison I was in when I did deny him. Three times I denied him. You'd think that having seen him on a mountain with John and James, with his clothes like white light and his face shining like the sun and being warned of my own failings and seeing everything Jesus did firsthand, you'd think that would be enough to make me stick by him and stand firm, but I didn't. I tried to save myself. For if someone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? I didn't know what he meant when he first said that, but now I understand. Now, nearer death than I've ever been, and yet more than ever fully alive. And so is Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for in his great mercy he has called us to be reborn into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He is alive beyond the reach of change. My destiny is beyond the reach of change. But so is my hope. There's not many things you can say that truly about. My hope, my inheritance is imperishable. Undefiled and undeniable. And untaxed. <laughs> when I looked into my risen Jesus' eyes, on the beach across that fire, it took me straight back to the time I denied him. The scar is still there, but the pain is not. Three times I denied him, and three times have I been restored. 
300 times have I been restored. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We're going to reflect in a moment on what the truth of Jesus' resurrection meant for Peter. But as we do that, I want to invite us to keep in mind, what does it mean for me? If it's true, if Jesus rose from the dead, what does it mean for my life and the way I live it from here on in? See, Jesus' resurrection didn't just provide the basis for validation of Jesus' claims and words. It gave the basis for vision. Vision for a life and a future. It changed everything for Peter. Remember those words that I read out earlier that Jesus had said to Peter, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus had a plan for Peter's life all along, a life to be lived in freedom. And so a few weeks later, Peter had gone back to his life of fishing, And not for the first time, there was a miracle involving fish that took place. And after that miracle, there was a meal. And Peter and Jesus spoke with one another. And Jesus reinstated Peter to what he had been called to do. To lead the church. As Jesus put it, to feed his sheep. And then, words that we've just heard... For me, some of the most amazing words in Scripture that you will find were spoken. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Follow me. The same words that Jesus had spoken to Peter just three years before, but this time it was different. And Peter, the same Peter who just weeks before, out of fear, denied even knowing Jesus, When told by Jesus, if you continue to follow me, you will be killed like me. He chose yes. He went from all or nothing to nothing to all. He was all in. And why was that? Because everything had changed. Jesus had given Peter the basis for vision for a future. Not a vision of a future of how the next few years might pan out or the vision of maybe a fulfilled life, 
But he'd given him a vision of eternity, a vision of what life was like when death had been defeated, where death had lost its sting. Now, just to be clear, we don't know exactly what Peter said the night before he died. We've had to use some imagination tonight. But we do know the way Peter went on and lived his life, that one day he would be killed for following Jesus. And he, in knowing that, he proceeded to live a life where he fearlessly proclaimed the good news of Jesus. Put simply, Peter no longer lived in fear. He went on to live a life of freedom, a life where he was no longer afraid. And there's an invitation for each of us tonight to that. About three years ago, following uh, my dad's death and other things that were going on in our family, I went through a significant period of time where when I was in big settings like this, I went through quite significant, I'd had quite significant anxiety. So even coming into church on a Sunday for, for quite a long time was, uh, was a difficult thing, and some of you may well be able to relate to that, and being in any large crowds. And um, during that time, there was a renewed sense in me of Jesus living in me. And so the anxiety didn't disappear straight away. And sometimes the anxiety can come again. But the reality was, is that Christ in me didn't change. And I've known more in the last three years of Jesus living in me than I probably had in the previous few years before that. And I'm thankful for that. And I wonder about, for each of us here tonight, where tonight are we living in fear? Where are we fearful about the opinions of others? Fearful about our finances? Fearful of sickness? Fearful of failure? Fearful of change? Maybe even fear of death? Or maybe the fear is, what if... I was to give a wholehearted yes to Jesus. What might that look like? And I believe that tonight there's an invitation, an invitation for you and for me to consider. And a question, what difference does the resurrection of Jesus actually make for me? See, as I've said, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it changed everything. It changed the very image of the good life. It changes our image of the good life, which is so often for us temporal. Because despite our best efforts, we so often still have an image of the good life being based around achievement and wealth and comfort and ultimately leisure. But none of that vision of a good life deals with or addresses anything of eternal significance. It doesn't speak to injustice, it doesn't speak to poverty, and it doesn't speak to the internal emptiness that so many in, our, in this city and beyond live with. But Jesus' death and resurrection does speak into all our doubts, all our fears, all our uncertainty. It turns our image of the good life on its head, one day someone else will dress you and lead you where you would rather not go. 
It's about as countercultural a statement as you could find in 2019 Nottingham. But it's a statement that can give us vision. It can change our vision of purpose and what it amounts to. Our vision of others, our vision of suffering, our vision of death, our vision of life. And I think that tonight Jesus wants to invite each of us, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, to step into his vision of what life might be. A place where we're free from the effect of sin in our lives, where we're free to live the life that he always intended for us where we're free from the hindrances and the needs imposed by the world, and ultimately where we're free from fear, the fear of death, the fear of what lies beyond death. Ultimately, it's an invitation to life. And in a minute, we're going to, we're going to sing again together one last song. And after that, there'll be an opportunity to respond in prayer. But before that... I just want to read to you a very quick story. And it's the story of a lady called Margie. And I heard this story told 24 years ago at a conference by John Wimber. John Wimber was the founder of the Vineyard Movement. And it had such an impact on me that when I was given a book a couple of years ago by my wife Donna, and this story was in there, I could pretty much remember it word for word. Margie was a woman of wonderful faith. Over the years, I'd watched her exercise that faith in many different situations. She was a delight to me, a personal partner in evangelism. Margie and I led many of her girlfriends to the Lord in in her living room and kitchen over the years. She, along with her husband Dave, were committed members of the church from the very first day. Margie suffered from brain tumours for a number of years. She had surgery that was somewhat successful, but continued on the long, long journey of this condition. I was praying for her one day when I sensed the Lord speaking to me. It wasn't an audible voice. Rather, I felt that God gave me some guidelines for ministering to Margie while I sat before him quietly. He said, you taught her how to live. Now teach her how to die. I started sweating immediately. I wasn't happy to hear those words. I loved Margie greatly, and I didn't want to see her life come to an end. At the time, her doctors wanted to send her to a hospital in Los Angeles with no real prospect of being healed. They recommended a treatment that might prolong Margie's life, but without much quality. She would suffer tremendously even with the treatment. I felt clumsy as I began to talk to Margie about an alternative to going to hospital. I shared with her that I thought her remaining weeks could be better spent at home with her children, husband, and loved ones. I told her to share her heart and love with them, as well as her aspirations and goals and faith. I expressed that I thought she would know when it was time to be with the Lord. She could invest in her family and then rest in the Lord's timing. I didn't think that Margie would agree because she was a campaigner. She was not one to give up without a fight. However, that night, she made a decision. She chose to give herself to her family. 
and to let the law decide about her future. The next seven or eight weeks, she stayed at home. She spent her days with her family and friends and shared her life. Because she chose to live conscious of impending death, she had meaningful exchanges with people. She didn't spend her her energies simply fighting cancer. When it was time, she told her husband that she needed to go to the hospital. When she was in the hospital, her kids and husband all got around the bed and they prayed for her. And they left. As soon as they left, she took a shower and put on her brand new nightgown. The nurse came in just as she was getting back into bed. And she said to her, my, how pretty you look. You're all dressed up to go someplace. Where are you going? Margie replied, I'm going to meet my king. Margie died that night. See, that's victory. That is resurrection life. Jesus' resurrection changes everything. It validates all he said and does. and it gives us vision and a gateway to the life that he's always intended for us I just want to invite you now if you're able to stand